as the saying goes, walk a mile in their shoes, if we can try to put ourselves in their situation, we begin to see the, the necessity of a teaching like what we find in the book of Hebrews. And it un, unfolds for us in this way that we, we begin to connect with and identify what the author is writing about here. But even if you're not Jewish, because we're not, I'm not, you're not, we're, we're, uh, we're redneck at best, right? I don't know what we would consider ourselves to be, but we're not Jewish, right? Even though we don't carry all of that cultural, eth- ethnic, uh, religious understanding, the beauty of the, the book of Hebrews is that it speaks to us today in a way that is so poignant, so necessary for our lives. Because Every one of us live in a world where we battle the, the things that would try to steal our affection and steal our attention. Every one of us lives in a world where we are surrounded day in and day out with, with a culture and a system that would, that would steer us away from faith in Jesus, not toward Him. Every one of us live in a day when increasingly we find that our Christian faith is attacked because it doesn't align with the cultural standards of our day. And so we can identify with what the the Jews are going through here in in this audience uh, to to the book. Now, I want to cover, just because I like to do this when we start a new book study, when we we delve into a new book, I want to cover just briefly some of the background for the book of Hebrews, okay? Before we jump into even today's message and the theme, I just want to, I want to quickly cover a few of these things. Who, was, who wrote the book of Hebrews? To whom was it written? When was it written? Some of these, these basic things. And if you have a good study Bible, a lot of this information you're going to find in the material in the pages that are just at, at the very outset of the book of Hebrews. Before we get into the, the book of Hebrews itself, you're going to have some charts. You're going to have an outline. You're going to have some, some, some information about key themes and, and that sort of thing. And so you can look and see that a lot of this is probably there, but not everybody has that. And I want to go over a, a few of these things. First of all, the, the book of Hebrews itself is entitled the letter to the Hebrews. But the book doesn't bear the form of a letter like many of the other letters in the New Testament. Think about a letter. Letters typically have a certain pattern to them, a certain form that they follow, right? There's, there's some kind of an introduction and a greeting. The person who's writing the letter addresses their audience. That's certainly the case with Paul's letters, with Peter's letters, with John's letters in the New Testament. But we don't know exactly who the author of the book of Hebrews was, I'll talk more about that in just a minute, but because we don't know a lot about the the author, there are some things that we have to fill in the gaps here as far as his, even his purpose, but we don't find the the introductory sort of customary greeting. For example, in the book of James, if you remember that we studied earlier this year the book of James, in the book of James, the book of James begins by addressing its audience as Jews who are scattered throughout the dispersion. That's the word that is used there. The diaspora is the Greek word. It just means people who are scattered throughout much of the known world at this part because their homeland has been invaded, because they have been captured and carried off into distant lands over a series of successive kingdoms. And so this is a a broad range of people who live geographically over a broad area. And James is writing to them to try to connect these truths. 
The letter to the Hebrews just begins almost like a Star Wars movie, right? Long ago at many times and in many ways. And, and, and with that, we're into the message of the book of Hebrews. And so over the years, many scholars, if they've studied this, have, have come to the conclusion that it's as if the book of Hebrews is actually a written sermon. In fact, so sometimes you'll, you'll see it addressed as a sermonic letter. What does that mean? Well, that's just saying that it's a letter that bears the form of a sermon. It's as if the author, to the, the author of the, the letter to the Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, has essentially just given his sermon manuscript and said, here, read this. I want to preach this message to you. And so he's written out a sermon word for word and, and is addressing them. The, the truth of the matter is we don't even know the actual title to the book because Again, we can understand from the letter itself, we can understand from studying that it's written to Jews, it's written to the Hebrews, but it's believed that originally it bore no actual title. So, for example, Paul writes the, the letter to the Philippians and he addresses it to the church in Philippi. And so the title of that letter is just the Philippians or the epistle, the letter to the Philippians. Well, Hebrews bore no original title that we're aware of, but in the early centuries, the, the early church began to refer to this just simply as the letter to the Hebrews. The, as I've said already, the author of the book of Hebrews is, is unknown. There have, been a lot of, there have been a lot of theories over the years as to who wrote. The earliest theory in the life of the church, of the early church, was that Paul was the author to this, to the, of this book, that Paul was the author of the letter to the Hebrews, but the, the challenge to that traditionally over time has been that the structure and the, the actual language, the verbiage, the, the writing itself is so different from the rest of Paul's writings. There's a, there's a form here that is so much grammatically more, uh, we might say, proficient or uh, grammatically more detailed than Paul's writings typically were. Paul writes much in the same way that you would have spoken, not with, not with as much form and as much prose and, and, and the, even just the, the higher level of language that we find in the book of Hebrews. The early church, particularly the Eastern church, attributed this fact to the fact that, that the book itself was written originally by Paul in the language of the Hebrews. And so Paul originally wrote this letter in the Hebrew or perhaps the Aramaic language that was the common language of the day. And that at a point later in time, Luke translated it from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek. And Luke's Greek is much different than Paul's Greek would have been. Luke, of course, is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke was a physician by trade. He was a doctor, and so he had a, a different level of education, a different, even just a different, uh, higher ed educated uh, grammar that he would use in his writing. And so the early church, particularly in the East, kind of held on to that idea. In fact, that idea came through Clement of Alexandria, and it was attributed to his mentor, um, a man named Panta Aeneus, who evidently was the one that, that championed this idea in the early church. Others have supposed that the book of Hebrews was written by, by Barnabas, uh, Paul's companion of Barnabas. Some have said that it was Apollos. Paul speaks frequently, particularly in his letters to the, the Corinthians, about Apollos. Some have supposed and believed that it was Apollos who wrote 
the book of Hebrews. Others believe that it was just Luke himself. Luke wasn't translating the work of Paul, but Luke himself was the author of the book of Hebrews, and, and even some still attribute it to a man whose name was Clement of Rome, who was one of the, the early church fathers. I'll tell you what we know about the author of Hebrews is that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. That's what we really know. We know that we don't know exactly, and although there are many reasonable explanations, you may say, well, what does it matter, right? I mean, we have the book in our, in our Bible, in our canon. It's gone through, I mean, literally at this point, hundreds of years worth of scrutiny and, and, and those things and study. So, so it's, it's completely reliable and trustworthy. What does it matter who wrote the book of Hebrews? And it matters in as much as it, it helps us pinpoint the, the original audience and, and the original purpose and, and those things. But the truth of the matter is we understand that it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the author of Hebrews, whomever that may have, be, have been, wrote the book of Hebrews. And so really it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a human author who has given us this, this letter that we might study it. And we've mentioned it's written to encourage Jewish Christians. Most likely, the letter of Hebrews was, was written prior to the fall of Jerusalem. In the year AD 70, Jerusalem fell to the Romans. The Romans came in, sieged the city of Jerusalem. They, they raised the temple, which that sounds like that means that they built it up, but when we say that they raised it, it means that they leveled it, right? They, they, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and, and with that, the Jews were scattered even more than they were prior to that point in history. And the very nature of the writing, particularly as we get into chapters 9, 10, uh, 9 and 10 of, of Hebrews, talks a lot about the sacrificial system and the way that it speaks of these sacrifices and things is as if they were still in practice at the time that the book was written. And so that has led us to believe, uh, scholars and, author, and, and, and theologians rather, to believe that Hebrews was likely written prior to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And, that, and that's about it that we can really pinpoint with great certainty. But as we study the book of Hebrews, a few things that, we, that, that really jump out to us is that clearly this is a letter written to people of faith to encourage them in their faith. Clearly, there, there is the, the marks of, of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in in the writing of this book to deliver to us a message that will challenge and shape our faith as we live for Jesus. And so throughout our study in the book of Hebrews, we're going to be challenged to dig in and, and mine the depths of what God has given us here in this book for us. You can see even on the, the title slide that along the way as we go through this study, I, I pray that that, that God would use it to, to really speak to you and, and, and show you truths that you need to grab onto for your life. And if you'd like to share that and kind of interact in an, in an interactive way on social media, we would encourage you to uh, just to tweet or use the hashtag greater than. By the way, when you read that, right, the, uh, the greater than symbol is in the, the, the way that we're going to pronounce that is greater than. That's the name of the sermon series, greater than, okay? So let's jump in. Hebrews chapter 1. That's a lot of setup here, right? But I wanted to cover some of that ground as we, as we jump in, but with both feet, to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. And we see that Jesus is greater than everything else in this world. Long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Wow. I mean, what, 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 a, what a prolific what, a, uh, what a, a beautiful, even a poetic way to describe Jesus in these first four verses in Hebrews chapter 1. Many scholars believe that the language here that is being used is, is likely taken from an early hymn in the life of the church. That the, just the, 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 the nature of how this is written, the, the meter with which it, it occurs in the Greek language and those things, that likely this is borrowing from some language that would have been used in, in a hymn, in a song that the, the early church would have sung. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. You are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those to inherit Salvation. So from the beginning here, we find as, as the author of Hebrews is writing to, to encourage his audience, he is, he is landing at this truth from the very outset of his letter. He's landing upon this truth that Jesus is greater than everything else in this world. And, and he begins by not only by saying that when he speaks with this language of Jesus, right? The heir of all things through whom he created the world. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Who upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. From the beginning, we find that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the rest of creation. He's greater than all things. And so I want us to see in our study, even of chapter 1 here, three things, three ways that Jesus is greater than, particularly in this text, in this chapter, we see that he's greater than the angels, okay? He's greater th than the angels, right? And, and there's a reason why that's important that we'll uncover as we work through this. The first point, and, and on the back of your sermon, uh, or in the back of your worship guide, I should say, where, your, where the sermon notes are, you can follow along. The first point is this. 
is that we see in Hebrews 1 a greater message. A greater message. That in Jesus, God has spoken a message far better than any message ever delivered by the angels. In fact, if we scan forward in Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 24, we see that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's significant about that? Hebrews 12, 24, it tells us that the blood of Jesus is, is better It speaks a word that is better than the blood of Abel. It's it's reminding us that the sacrifice of Jesus, His blood, delivers to us a message better than any message that has ever been delivered throughout the Old Testament. We can see examples of where angels appeared and delivered messages to God's people. In fact, the word angel itself comes from the Greek word Angelos, and that word in the Greek is the same word for messenger. And so the angelos, the word angel, is just a transliteration of a Greek word, which means a messenger. The role, the purpose, the work of, of angels is as God's messengers. They are created beings. You know, there's a, a common cultural perception in our world today that, that you know, we think of angels as chubby little babies with wings that fly around strumming harps all day long. But when you read the Bible and you look at what the Bible says about angels, angels are actually terrifying beasts. The Old Testament speaks of angels that have that have four different faces and six set of wings. And when they cry out, their voices sound like thunder shaking the earth. It's significant that in in almost every instance in the Bible where we see an angel appear to deliver a message, the first words out of the angel's mouth are always, don't be afraid. Angels were terrifying Creatures, to be sure. We're not talking about you know, chubby little babies who sit on clouds and, and sing pretty little songs all day. These are terrifying creatures with power, with awe, with, with majesty and might who have the ability to, to, to champion the work of God, who are empowered by God Himself, who are given the task, the role of being the messengers of God to His people. And as we look at all of the different ways that God uses angels, all of the different instances of of how he delivers a word, I think maybe perhaps the greatest message of all that could have been delivered by a message, or rather could have been delivered by an angel, would have been maybe the, the foretelling of the coming of Christ or even the heralding of the birth of Christ, right? I mean, if you're an angel and you know that God's going to send you to this earth with a message, that's the job that you want, right? You want to be the angel. You want to sign up on the list. Put your name on the list that says, I want to go up here to Mary and tell her that she's going to have a baby and his name is going to be Jesus, right? Lord, if, I, if I'm an angel, that, God, that's the job that I want. Give me that job, right? Or, or maybe you want to be one of the angels that gets to sing in the heavenly host with the choir that appeared before the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth and, and who shout from the, from the sky, from the heavens, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to men. That's the job that you want as an angel is to herald the birth of the Christ, the Savior of all mankind. And yet what we find is that Jesus himself is superior to the the angels in every way. 
Because the message that Jesus delivers is a message far greater than any message that the angels could have ever delivered. In fact, the best message that the angels ever delivered was that Jesus was coming. And Jesus, when He comes into this earth, He delivers the superior message, which is essentially this, right? That He has brought salvation to His people. That He has accomplished the work that God has given Him. We see in John chapter 17 where where Jesus cries out to the Father and says, I have completed the work that You have given Me. Jesus has a greater message. He delivers a a greater message. And, And so Hebrews tells us that He was the mediator. Jesus was the mediator of a new covenant by His blood. And that His blood speaks a better word than than the word of of Abel, than the the blood of Abel, which just means that the blood of Jesus is, is greater news than any other news in all of creation. That's why we call it the good news, right? The gospel is truly good news because it's news for us who are dead, who are dying. It's significant even that God would speak a message to us at all, isn't it? In the study Experiencing God, we learn from the very outset. In fact, if you've ever gone through that study Experiencing God, it really begins with this truth, that God speaks. That that's so fundamental to our Christian faith that we need not overlook that, that we need to understand and and, and revel in the, the beauty of that truth, that God speaks, that the God of the universe has chosen to reveal himself at all to you and to me, that he speaks a word to us, that his desire is to be in a relationship with us. And so when God speaks, we should listen, right? If Jesus came to proclaim a message, then this is a message that you and I need to hear. And what was the message that Jesus came to proclaim? The salvation of sinners. The redemption of mankind. That you and I, though dead in our trespasses and sins, could be forgiven by His sacrifice. By by His life offered up for us the message of Jesus. The message uh, of the cross. The message of Christ is that He has come to forgive and redeem us. And by faith, those who know Jesus understand this message, which is why Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. If we are followers of Jesus, if by faith we have trusted in Him, believed in Him, then we know His voice. We hear His voice. Fundamental to the call to salvation itself is this truth that we, have, that we have listened to the voice of God and responded by faith to Him. So Jesus delivers a greater message. A greater message than any message that the angels or anyone else in all of creation has ever delivered. Jesus has delivered this message that it is finished. That He has done the work that the Father had given him to do. Praise God for his message. Praise God for that good news. But not only do we see a greater message, right? Not only in, in Hebrews 1 do we see this greater message that, that, that Jesus, the message he delivers is better, is superior to the, the angels, it, it tells us, right? Superior to the word that they said. We see also a greater work. Not only a greater message, but a greater work. We see that through Jesus, God accomplished a work far better than any work that the angels ever accomplished. And so the angels even say, let's worship Him. The angels 
The angels bow down at his throne. The angels prostrate themselves before God in honor and worship of him because they recognize that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater and his work is superior to anything that they have ever done or could ever do. In John chapter 17, verse 3, as Jesus is praying, he says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that's exactly what we see in Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. It's, it's essentially the, the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus was involved with creation from the beginning. He, has, he, he, he is God and, and He has experienced the glory of God because He is God, because He's been involved in these works. And even in all of this, the message that He declares is that His work in saving is better. What do we see in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2 with all of creation? As God looks at everything that He has created, He says, it is good. It is good. It is good. In fact, the one thing that we find that was not good was that God says it is not good for man to be alone. And so He created woman to be a companion for man. He created Eve to be Adam's companion from the beginning because it wasn't good for man to be alone. But what Hebrews 1 is telling us is that of all God's creation, of everything that He's created and everything that He's done... His work in saving us, His work in redeeming us is better. Is better than anything else. If you want want to look and say, what is the greatest thing that God has done? What is the greatest of all of the works of God? God Himself would say, my greatest work is in saving and redeeming this broken, fallen world. It's a greater work that Jesus accomplished a work far better than anything that the angels have ever done a great work a greater work that he has done and then third we see this a greater position because of his message because of his work because of who he is hebrews tells us that jesus has a position that is greater than any than any other literally we see that as for jesus that god has given him a position far better than any position that the angels occupy jesus alone is seated at the right hand of god the father in heaven. That phrase, seated at the right hand, is a significant phrase. It's used throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, we see that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. We see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, that if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So above in heaven is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, speaking of Jesus, says that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected 
to Him that Jesus is greater than all of the rest of creation. His position at the right hand of God is the position of power, the position of authority. In the book of Hebrews, we see not only here in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, we read that the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Throughout the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews, four times in the the book of Hebrews, this idea is mentioned that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is that significant? Because it's the position of authority. It shows that Jesus has authority, that he is superior to all of creation. So he has a greater position, greater power, we might say. Greater power in that there's nothing you and I have done that Jesus doesn't have the power to overcome. There's no sin that you and I could sin that is greater than the power of Jesus' blood to forgive us, to to cover over our sin. There's nothing that you and I can do that is beyond his power to forgive and redeem us from our sin. That is the message of the Scripture. That is especially the message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than everything else in this world. Everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, everything that you could do in the future. Jesus is greater. And it's proven by His work on the cross. And it's proven by the message that He delivered when He declared those who trust in Him forgiven and set free. A greater message, a greater work, a, better pos- a greater position because of the work that Jesus has done. So this morning, if you're here, and there's never been that moment when by faith you have trusted in Jesus. There's never been that moment when by faith you have reached out to Him asking for His forgiveness for your sin, asking Him to forgive, to, to redeem you, to set you free from the things that you've done that I then I I challenge you, I pray that this morning you would hear this message and, and you would understand that it is through faith in Jesus, by coming to Him in faith, that you can be forgiven and set free from everything else in this world. No matter what you've done, no matter what burdens you carry, no matter what problems you face, no matter what difficulties or hardship, no matter what sins you are wrestling with, Jesus is better. He's greater than every other thing. And by faith, if you and I would trust in Him, if we would surrender ourselves to Him, if we would believe in Him, then we can experience that same power of Christ at work in our lives. That's that's the message of Hebrews. As we get into the latter chapters of Hebrews, particularly in chapters 11, 12, and 13, what do we find? That not only is it significant that Jesus is greater than all the things in this world, but now this same Jesus that we've trusted in by faith enables us by faith to live for Him. He enables us, He empowers us by faith to live the life that we could never live on our own. It only comes through trusting in Him 
trusting in his, his work. The greater message, a greater work, a greater position, because he's conquered death. And I hope that this morning you would trust in him. In a moment, we will have a time of invitation. As we stand together in that, in that time to sing the song of invitation, our altars will be open. And, and, and today, if you need to trust in Jesus, then I pray that you would, you would come forward. Take me, take Brad by the hand, and just say, today I'm ready to trust in Jesus. I'm ready to trust in him. Listen, no matter what you've done in your past, I promise you this truth. Jesus is greater than your past. No matter what you're wrestling with at this moment, whatever sin, whatever addictions, whatever hardship, whatever difficulties, no matter what it is that you've done or that you're doing, Jesus is greater than everything else in this world. He's greater than than your sin. His power can overcome all of that and enable you to live by faith in the life that he's called you to. Maybe you're here and and you've trusted in Jesus, but you're still wrestling with some of those things from your past. You're still holding on to and and, and, and treasuring in your heart some of those areas of of sin, those things that you know you should surrender to him, but but it's hard to let go of those old habits. It's hard to give those, those things up. Today, I pray that you would come and, and, and you would kneel here in prayer at our altar and, and release those things to him. You surrender those areas of your life to Jesus, trusting in his power, not only to forgive you, but to empower you to live by faith the life that he's called you to. Whatever it is that you're facing, Jesus is greater. He's greater than everything in this life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, by faith today, we, we believe this truth Lord, as we sang in the, in the song earlier, make my heart believe. Lord, when I wrestle to accept this as true, when I, when I think about what I've done in the past, when we think about our guilt and our shame, Lord, make our hearts believe. Help our unbelief so that we trust in you and rely upon the truth of your word. Lord, if there's anyone here who doubts this because it's written in, in your word, because it's written in, in a book that, that maybe they, they wrestle with just accepting this truth simply because the Bible says so, then God, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would would challenge and speak to their heart so that they would know that they can trust in this word because your word is true, because your word is, is dependable, it's reliable in our lives. And God, as an act of worship now, we We acknowledge you are greater than everything in this world, everything in this life. Lord, help us live by faith in the power that you give so that we can experience that that overcoming power in our lives, the same power that, that helped you overcome sin and death and the grave, the same resurrection power that is given to us we see in the scripture. Lord, help us to live by that power as we trust in you. We pray this in your name.